Well, Merry Christmas, and I don't know if you're listening to any of the news, but Merry Christmas has become Lord of sort of this forbidden phrase now. I say to you, Merry Christmas. We are celebrating the birth of our Savior, and like we looked at uh, last week, the play in that, it's every day for us. Jesus was born into this world, and he completely changed our lives. So if you're here this morning, you don't know him yet, we are hoping that you won't miss out. Uh, he came for you as well as for me and all those in this room. In fact, he came for the whole world that we might walk with the Lord. So this morning in John chapter 1, would you stand as we read the word and we believe that this is the word of God. So when we read it, we hear it, we listen to it, God himself, this is his voice to our, our hearts. So we're going to read that. I'm going to go through John chapter 1, verse 1 through uh, 18. Not, not uh, thoroughly, because there's so much here, but I just want to talk about as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. He says he came to his own, his own did not receive him, but to those who received him. So I want to talk about this whole area of just receiving him, or really receiving as a whole, as many as received him. So John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the word, that is Jesus, but used in terminology that would reach the Greek audience to whom John was writing. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt or literally tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom, that means the heart of the Father, he has declared him. So Lord, we bow before you. The only one that is worthy of our worship, even as we just sang some songs, Lord, just to, again, bring us to, a, to that place of worshiping you, loving you, serving you, obeying all these things that come out of you reaching out to us, sending Jesus, that we might know these things that we're looking at, grace, truth, glory. So, Lord, we thank you for that. We pray again as we enter into, well, we're in this season of Christmas, but here we are, a couple days away, lots of family, lots of friends, lots of interaction that's going on. We're asking in Jesus' name that you might be made manifest, that you might be seen, that you might be known. And we're praying, Lord, again, for our own walks with you, that we might know you, the only true God, and that we might love you with all our soul, heart, mind, and strength, that, Lord, you would... You, you would just take our lives as best as we can give them to you, and as only you can do, transform them into the image of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, here we are. Bless, I pray, these things I prepared. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. You can be seated. Psychology today, now I... I always hesitate to talk about psychology and psychiatry, but psychology is simply the study of the mind and behavior. Psychiatry is then trying to treat that, so that's the difference. But there's a lot of things that we are interested in and want to understand, 
and we, have made, we made in the image of God are complicated. Would you say amen to that? And how these things work, and then we, even in our own families, we can't figure things out. But in talking about those who received him, and this whole idea of why receiving is harder than giving. You find that? Psychology Today gave five reasons. Number one, it's a defense against intimacy. In other words, it's, it, it's a way to, that we keep people distant by sort of not receiving. It's hard to receive. I find that for myself. It keeps my heart defended lest something happen. Two, they say it's, it's, the, it's letting go of control. So by receiving, I'm letting go of control. Third, the fear of strings attached. Fourth, we believe it is selfish to receive. Fifth, it's a self-imposed pressure to reciprocate. They give those five things. Now, God is the great initiator. We are the responders. When we receive Jesus, we experience intimacy with God. We experience the freedom to let go and let God. We're just relinquishing control to God's hands who is able to keep us from stumbling. Three, we experience the unconditional love of God. No strings attached in that sense. Fourth, we, del- we are delivered from the bondage of self-centeredness. Fifth, we experience God's love. Can you say amen? amen? God's love. What he seeks is relationship. He seeks us. And so, in this article, I didn't, I didn't put this in, but let me just read what he writes, because I think it's very, it, it's something to chew on a little bit. And if you want this, you can email me, I'll send it to you. He said, the parched earth can't let in a life-giving rain if it is covered by plastic tarp. Without the capacity to be touched by caring and appreciation, we render these gifts less meaningful. Sacred receiving, letting things in with heartfelt gratitude, is a gift to the giver. When we are visibly moved, it conveys that they made a difference in our lives. We may then bask together in a non-dual moment in which there is no distinction between the giver and the receiver. Both people are giving and receiving in their own unique ways. This shared experience can be profoundly sacred and intimate. And then he says this, a moment of delectable grace. Now, we're talking human level, but in in this whole relationship that God desires with us, in in us knowing his love, the psalmist put it this way, Psalm 116, What shall I render to the Lord for all of its benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and call On the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord. Now in the presence of all his people. So there's a response. It's just an honesty. It's a vulnerability. It's a sincerity that God. I'm responding to who you are. He goes on in the same Psalm verse 17 to say. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And will call upon the name of the Lord. A response of just thankfulness to the Lord. 
is our response to all that he is in our lives. A response of sincerity and honesty and vulnerability for who he is. Now, I look at the Christmas story. Joseph responded by taking Mary as his wife. He's thinking she's pregnant outside, and, he, and God, the angel comes and knows she's, she's a conceived of the Holy Spirit. So Joseph responded to the communication from God by taking Mary and trusting God in this matter that, could, that would, no doubt, totally embarrass him, as it did. I look at Mary. You know what Mary did? This is so awesome. Mary responded by magnifying the mercy of God, not only toward her, but toward all her people, in receiving this Jesus. How we can respond? By just magnifying the mercy of God. The shepherds responded. You know what they did? They went out and told everybody. <laughs> and that's our same thing. We, we have this relationship with God. What's the normal response going to be? I'm going to go out and tell everybody about God. You know what the wise men did about a year later after his birth? They fell down and they worshipped him. And they opened up their treasures to him. See, these are responding to who God is in our lives. For several years in the beginning of Calvary Chapel, we've been going 29 years now. I used to put this little, little uh, column in that Harry Reasoner wrote. And it really has to do with this one topic what I, what I, this morning. It's relationship. What God desires is relationship. So I have these up here if you want to uh, take one of them. But several decades ago, this how many of you know who Harry Reasoner was? Okay. He wrote these words about Christmas. Now, you'd never hear these now on 60 Minutes. There's no way. Several decades ago, Reasoner later, he later claimed that nothing he'd ever written before or after generated the same level of response. So I put, I'm going to put it up here. I just want to read through it with you. The basis for this tremendous annual burst of gift-buying and parties and near hysteria is a quiet event that Christians believe. Now, when you see these capital letters, and you'll see them through the Scriptures too, I just myself, as I'm going through, I bold and do all these things. So that I, I decided I'm just going to put it up there. Normally, I, anyway, I'll... Just a little commentary. <laughs> that Christians believe actually happened a long time ago. You can say that in all societies, there's always been a midwinter festival, and that many of the trappings of our Christmas are almost violently pagan. But you come back to the central fact of the day and quietness of Christmas morning, the birth of God on earth. It leaves you with only three ways of accepting Christmas. One is cynically as a time to make money or endorse the making of it. One is graciously the appropriate attitude for non-Christians who wish their fellow citizens all the joys to which their beliefs entitle them. And the third, of course, is reverently. If this is the anniversary of the appearance of the Lord in this universe in the form of a helpless babe, then it is a very important day. It is a startling idea, of course. My guess is that the whole story that a virgin was selected by God to bear his son as a way of showing his love and concern for man is not an idea that has been popular with theologians. <laughs> it's a somewhat logical idea, and theologians like logic as much as they like God. It's so revolutionary a thought that it probably could only come from a God that is beyond logic and beyond theology. It has a magnificent appeal. Almost nobody has seen God, and almost nobody has any real idea of what he is like. 
And the truth is that among the idea of among the idea that idea and the truth is that among men this idea of seeing God suddenly and standing in a very bright light is not necessarily a completely comforting and appealing idea. But everyone has seen babies and most people like them. If God wanted to be loved as well as feared, he moved correctly here. If he wanted to know his people as well as rule them, he moved correctly here for a baby growing up learns all about people. If God wanted to be intimately part of man, he moved correctly for the experience of birth and familyhood are our most intimate and precious experiences. So it goes beyond logic. It is what Bishop Carl Morgan Block used to call a kind of, I like this, divine insanity. It is either all falsehood or it is the truest thing in the world. It's the story of a, the great innocence of God, the baby, God in the form of man. And it has such a dramatic shock toward the heart that it is not true for Christians, nothing is true. So if a Christian is touched only once a year, the touching is still worth it. And maybe on some given Christmas, some final quiet morning, the touch will take. As we celebrate the birth of God, I, this morning and just for this year, I hope the same touch will take. That this dramatic, incredible story that's more than a story, it's an historical event where God became a babe. And so Jesus, it says, the word became flesh. God became a baby, a normal, healthy baby. I always wonder if they ask, what's this, you know, how long and how much did he weigh? <laughs> His appearance was normal. Isaiah chapter 53 tells us. He has no former comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's a normal baby. And the word dwelt among us, relationship. Jesus grew up as a normal, healthy boy in a normal Jewish family. When he was 12 years old, we read this about his childhood, the only thing we have about it. Now, now, it's, now, now remember, Joseph and Mary were going to Jerusalem for the Passover, so they're going there to celebrate that. And now it was, after three days, they found him in the temple. So they're going back, and they get home and realize, okay, where's Jesus? He's not here. Oh, man, what happened? You know, one Christmas, we went down to Seattle Center with our families, along with about four or five other families from our church. We used to do that every year. All in vans, all the kids are piled in. We get down to Seattle Center. We walk what we did. We went, took the tram and all that stuff. We get back home, and Marcus, who we had just adopted, is gone. <laughs> Where did it happen? So I call up Dan LaHaye. I say, Dan, is he? No, he's not. Where's, Ty, where's, where's Marcus? Turns out he followed the wrong feet when we were getting off the tram, and he wound up completely lost. We had just adopted him, and so somebody took him to police, and we went down and got him. So I can relate to this story. So after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. This was a unique uh, uh, 12-year-old boy. So when they saw him, they were amazed, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have sought you anxiously. He said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them. Now, here he grew up as a normal Jewish boy, normal in the sense of he was experienced all of family, all that stuff, but his mother kept all these things. So Mary, because of the whole process of the birth and all, she's pondering these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature 
and in favor with God and men. So Jesus grew up, matured. He be, the, the, the babe became a young man. The young man became a full-grown adult. So we read in 1 Timothy 3.16, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on the world, received up. See, he's very unique as far as Jesus, who he is. Now, the thing that we get to do is we get to look back in hindsight. His family didn't have that hindsight. So when we read, he knew no sin. When we read, he was without sin. When we read that he is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He is a unique one of a kind. When we read these things, it's no, it, it doesn't, why, why would we question that his half-brothers would, didn't believe in him? Can you imagine growing up with a perfect brother? I don't know what the tension was around the house, but Jesus was perfect. He's the perfect brother. So I'm imagining just like with Joseph, his brothers got a little jealous, a little envious. And so we read in John 7, 5, even his brothers did not believe in him until they heard his words. They saw his works. They witnessed or heard of the, obviously his death, but then his resurrection. And so his his half-brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude, the book we're going to be studying in January for four weeks, when they saw these things, they came to believe he is who he claimed to be. And so listen to what his half-brother wrote, Jude. Now to him, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before his glory, before the presence of glory with exceeding joy, this is, he's talking about his half-brother who he didn't believe in growing up. He realized that indeed he is the Son of God. And he said this, To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory, dominion, and power. Be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Jude will be bowing down before him in eternity. He's unique, one of a kind, but he came for relationship. Now, we're going to be studying Jude in January. Kick off the year with, a, with four studies through the book of Jude on contending for the faith. As I look at the world in which we live, as I look at our nation, it has become more and more evident that we need to contend for the faith once for all given to the saints. That we are, up, we are in a battle in contending for the faith. So we're going to be taking four weeks, four-part study. We're also going to be taking 10 weeks with our small groups. And Pastor Paul is putting together a, a 10-week um, sort of lessons in scriptures. So if you're joining a small group, some of them will be going, not all of them, but some will be going through the book of Jude at the same time. And here's what I want to ask you to, to participate in. There are 25 verses in the book of Jude. I'm going to ask you each week to take one of those verses, and we'll go through the whole book, and memorize it. If you don't feel like you memorize, just to meditate on one verse a week. So by the end of June, we would have gone, done the whole book. And then in July, I want to re-up it and re- again. Because this book is an incredible book. It has to be studied in the context, particularly of the culture in which we live. We must contend earnestly for the faith. We have to contend humbly 
for the faith. We must contend faithfully for the faith once for all that we believe and we follow. So no one has seen God at any time. Verse 18. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So Jesus came. He lived a normal Jewish life. He grew up and matured as a young man to a full-grown adult. He went out for three years and was ministering as, as the Son of God to the world. He was crucified. He was buried. He rose again the third day, demonstrating that God himself is desiring relationship. That's what he wants. He wants us to know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he sent. And so Jesus grew up, and in dying on the cross, he there once for all revealed the bosom of the Father, the heart of God, the love of God for you and for me, clearly demonstrated. And so Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of, to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So look at your passage now again. I just want to read it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The beginning has no beginning. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So listen. Jesus is the eternal creator God. Hasn't changed. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. This man came from for a witness to bear witness to what? To the light that all through him what might believe. Relationship. He was not that light, John the Baptist but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man comes into the world. Listen, Jesus is not only the eternal creator God, Jesus is the true light who gives light. Understanding, revelation. Verse 13, excuse me, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own notice, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. We didn't earn that. He gave the right relationship to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. In other words, Jesus gives the right to become children of God, to be born again spiritually, to enter in a relationship with God in the spiritual dimension in which we were created in his image, and to know him in this eternal transaction and understanding eternal life. What is eternal life? To know him, the only true God. Wow. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now, John the Baptist was born six months earlier than Jesus. So in the time dimension, it's after, but not in the eternal dimension. John the Baptist understood. He's eternal. He's the Son of God. 
He was preferred before me. John said, I'm not even worthy to unloose the sandals of his feet. And of his fullness we have all received, and notice, grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only God in the Father who is in the bosom, a son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared. Jesus is not only the eternal creator God. Jesus is not only the true light which gives light. Jesus is not only the one who gives us the right to become the children of God, but Jesus is full of grace and truth, relationship. The eternal God wanting relationship. And Jesus came that he might be believed and received. Believed in and received. There was a man sent from God that they might believe. He came to his own and they did not believe, but as many as received him to those who believe in his name. He came to be believed and received. Now, this to me is incredible. That the eternal God initiated a plan, by the way, a very painful plan, though filled with joy, by which he himself would reconcile us to himself. By believing and receiving Jesus. It's relationship that God wants to reconcile. The eternal creator God became a human being, fully human, to shine in the darkness that we might believe and receive Jesus and be given the right to become children of God. This is incredible when you stop to consider what are we celebrating? That we might be born again, born into his family, Relationship. That the eternal God came and dwelt among us. That we might behold the glory and be recipients of his grace grace and truth. Relationship. That's what we're celebrating. As many as received him. Now, what makes this so incredible is that we deserved none of it. Just the opposite. That's one of my favorite passages in the scriptures. Ephesians chapter 2. And you he made alive. Who were what? Dead in trespasses and sins. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And notice, we're by nature children of wrath just as the others. But God, love that, capitalized it, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He's full of grace and truth. And raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places where? In Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us where? In Christ Jesus' relationship. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is what? The gift of God. We're the responders. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created again in Christ Jesus, which for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's glory. That, we deserve none of it. This is God's initiating. This is God giving for the purpose of relationship. 
reconciliation. The eternal creator God is, listen, relational. He's the triune God. He, God is love. You can't have love if there's only one being. The triune God is love. And his desire is relationship. His desire is us. Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own what love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through what? The death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord. So there's but God, and then there's but we. Also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We behold his glory. He came to reconcile us because he is love relationship. The glory of his love displayed on the cross is in wanting to reconcile us back to relationship. John chapter 13. So when he had gone out, when, when Judas had gone out now to betray him, gone into the darkness, Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room that night, now the Son of Man is glorified. And God is glorified in him. He's going to the cross. He's going to fulfill all these things. One who, the one who used to walk with me has betrayed him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Then in chapter 17, this blows my mind, the end of Jesus' earthly, uh, what, what they call the, the earth, his uh, high priestly prayer, John 17. This isn't up there. Jesus is praying, closing out this little, these, these five chapters. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. Relationship. (laughs) That they may behold my glory, which you have given me. What is it? For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me be with me. It's relationship. He continues his prayer in verse 25. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it. What is it? That the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Love. Relationship. That's what God desires. That's why he gave his only begotten son. That's why he initiated the plan. That's why he sent his son, that we might be brought back into relationship with him. Full of grace, he came, not only reconciles, he came to relate to us because he is love. And thus his grace in our lives. Romans says, moreover the law Enter that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Titus puts it this way. For we ourselves, this is one of the ugly lists, we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasure, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. 
But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to his mercy, he what? Saved us through the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his what? Grace. We should become heirs of, of, according to the hope of eternal relationship. He's full of grace. And the grace of God brings us into relationship with him in salvation and ongoing relationship. He's full of truth. He not only came to reconcile us, he not only came to relate to us, he came to reason with us. This, why would he do that? There's only one reason. He loves us. He sent Jesus to communicate relationship. And so... John 15, he says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they'd have no sin, but now they have seen also hated both me and me. He came to reason with us even when we, as we read in Titus, hated. Even when our hearts were full of sin, he came. As Isaiah chapter 118 says, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And he, it says in John, that chapter 1, and his, of his fullness we all receive, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses. You see, the law was given to show us our sin that we might realize we need the grace of God. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. And there's no more greater reasoning power than the cross of Jesus Christ. He came to relate to us by grace through faith, to reconcile that, to have relationship, and to speak truth, to reason with us. And the greatest power, that's why Paul, Paul the Apostle said, I, I'm not going to glory in anything but the cross of Jesus Christ. Now the world looks at his foolishness, but it's the power of God unto salvation. Wow. To reason with us. And how can you Rebuff the reasoning when you realize that God, the eternal, infinite God, sent his son, the perfect human being, who went to the cross willingly and died on the cross for us to demonstrate our, his love for us. And what does he want? What's he asking for? Relationship. He wants to have a relationship with you and with me. That we know his love. You see, when the law shows us our sickness, when the law shows us our lostness, Jesus comes, and in reason he said, those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. <laughs> Matthew 19.10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those which are, that which was lost. And there are some powerful, powerful parables that Jesus gave the lost coin, the lost sheep, and finally, the lost son, the prodigal. Sin left us all broken, sick, and impossibly indebted to God. God's remedy? Repentance. Repentance. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's very simple, really. God wants relationship. He's provided all we need. He's given us all that we need. First John says, this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is where? In his Son. He who has the Son has life, but he who, notice, does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
Note that if you do not know the Son. It's an urgency. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know God. You do not have a relationship with him. And what's needed is the response to his initiating, the response to his desire for relationship, the response to his love, the response to the cross. What is it? Repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. And so what has God declared? What does Jesus declare? What does Christmas remind us? It's not try harder, you can do it. It's not work harder, you can make it. No, it's to receive Jesus Christ afresh. (sighs) To look to the cross. The shadow of the cross was there right from the beginning. As they present Jesus being circumcised, and Simeon says, He's gonna break your this is gonna break your heart big time. A sword. And as Mary is standing there looking at the cross, there with John, looking at Jesus, they're being crucified. She had been pondering many things all through those years, 30 years. And there's her son for three years in the ministry, out doing good and healing people. And now they're crucifying my son, they're crucifying him. There's Jesus on the cross, and he sees Mary there, and he also sees John there. He says, woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. And from that hour, he took her into his own home. John took Mary in. It would only be three more days, but it must have been an eternity when he rises from the dead, and things begin to fall into place that God wants relationship. As many as received him, not as few, as many. In other words, the invitation is open to all. The problem is our pride. The problem is pride. That person doesn't want to come to Christ because then I have to admit that I'm needy. I have to admit that I can't offer what I, I can't offer things that would require that would be required from God to give me salvation. The great message of Christmas is so simple, a child can understand it. Would you say this with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How many times have you heard that verse? Let's re-up it this Christmas season. This is what it's all about. It's relationship. There are three things striking in this verse. Number one, when God loves, he loves a world. When God gives, he gives his son. And when God saves, he saves forever. Relationship. It's the heart of the message of the Bible. This is one of these favorites that come up to me every John 3.16 moment. God is the greatest lover. So loved the greatest degree, the world, the greatest number, that he gave the greatest act, his only begotten son, the greatest gift, that whosoever, the greatest invitation, believes the greatest simplicity, in him, the greatest person, should not perish the greatest deliverance, but 
the greatest difference. Have the greatest certainty. <laughs> Everlasting life. The greatest possession ever. That's John 3.16. You cannot truly celebrate Christmas until you can look up into the Father's face and tell him you have received his son as your Savior. You've received his son as your reconciler. You received his son in relationship. You've received his son through repentance. You've received his son to be with him for all eternity and to know his love. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator, though Jesus is the perfect educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent a scientist. Jesus is the greatest scientist. He created it. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent, sent us a Savior. The Word did not become a philosophy, a theory, or a concept to be discussed, debated, or pondered. But the Word became a person to be followed, enjoyed, and loved. And finally, this from Harry Reasoner. Because the message of Christmas is the Christmas story. If it is false, we are doomed. If it is true as it must be, it makes everything else in the world all right, unquote. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the great love with which you loved us. That even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, you sent Jesus the plan from the foundation of the world to come into this world. You sent your only begotten son to manifest your glory, your love, to communicate, Lord, to us your provision, your desire that we might be reconciled and have relationship, have eternal life. This is eternal life. They may know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. So